0: There is this really compelling story I have to share with you, and it's a, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Teach for America. There was a teacher by the name of Crystal Jones. Crystal Jones had no teaching certificate, but she went to go teach for Teach for America, which places teachers in um, kind of under-resourced impoverished neighborhoods and so she ended up in kind of the inner city of Atlanta and she went to show up to teach and she was assigned this first grade class and in this first grade class there was no kindergarten before it so imagine being the first grade teacher and all the kids showing up not having been sort of acclimated to what it is to sit for seven hours a day or whatever in a first grade class I mean you could imagine the, the but she said what was worse is some of these kids um hadn't ever like they didn't know their alphabet some of them wouldn't even hold the book the right way because they had no literacy at all they didn't know basic kinder words you know cat and ball and dog and so there was this great huge deficit so first-time teacher showing up hasn't even earned her credential but She wants to make a difference. And so she shows up into this inner city environment, start teaching these kids. Uh, And so uh, I just want to read with you. She says, at the beginning of the year, I had two or three students um, who couldn't even recognize kinder sight words, but also students who didn't know how to hold a pencil, hold the book up the right way, and didn't know even the alphabet, certainly not how to behave in the classroom. And no one was where they needed to be in first grade. So the question is, if you're Crystal Jones, what do you do? Except pull your hair out or get overwhelmed or be the clock watcher going, when is this day going to end? What did I sign up for, right? Well, here's what she did. She noticed the psychology of first graders. She's spending time at recess in the early part of the year. And what is it that you notice about every first grader is that they want to be a third grader. Because, you know, I mean, you can have a good relationship with your kid and enjoy playing with your kid. But the next minute that a kid who's a little bigger and a little older shows up, you're like yesterday's news, right? So the idea was inspired, like kind of planted in her mind, like, I know what every first grader wants. What every first grader wants is to be a third grader. And so she creates this whole idea of how to motivate change in the classroom. And so she introduces herself to the class. She says, my name's Mrs. Jones, I'm your teacher, and I am gonna turn you all into third graders. Now, you're probably thinking, well, what about second grade? Don't worry about it. Just go with it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's OK. It'll all work out in the end. And so she takes this on and she, you know, she tries to kind of seed the idea and the motivation. You know, third graders, they can run faster than first graders. Uh, OK, all right. They can, they can write better than first graders. They can read better than first graders. I mean, who doesn't want to be a third grader? And so she devised a, a, a strategy for this, and, um, b- but basically saying that's who you and we are going to become. Now, the strategy kind of had three components to it, and this is what I thought was so great in terms of being a great culture builder. I mean, certificate aside, she had this sense of how to build culture in order to f- fulfill the objective. And the first thing she did is she stopped using any first names. And she referred to every student as Scholar Nelson, Scholar Sunday, I'm Scholar Jones. Everything was scholar by the last name. And so when anyone would ever come to the class, they would say, this is our group, welcome to our class, this is our group of budding third grade scholars. And then she taught everyone the definition of what it means to be a scholar. A scholar lives to learn and is really good at doing it. And so every day they would recite what a scholar is. You know what happened? By Halloween, she had them. It got to the point that kids who had never been in a classroom before didn't want to miss. And nothing was being held against them about where they came from. Everyone was viewed in light of being this budding third-grade scholar. She seated in this aspirational, motivational desire to become a third-grade scholar. Well, by June, every single one of her first-grade class was now at level now for some that was just neat they okay that there's a natural progression for some who didn't even know the alphabet it was remarkable so when they did all the testing at the end the entire class was now at grade level i mean that's a huge miraculous win simply by seating in them who they could become and really what it did is it changed the way they saw themselves I mean, you can bribe them, and we parents do that sometimes. You can threaten them, you know, with citizenship or whatever, or detention. Or you can give them a lens in which they view their own life, which feels like change from the inside out. The motivation becomes internal. Well, that's who I want to become. And if she sees me that way, then that certainly must be true. The whole class began to excel at the highest level. And so when we open the book of Ephesians, this, this is exactly what Paul's doing in his letters. And Paul's core conviction is that the fundamental change that we're all supposed to experience spiritually is is who starts with a sense of who we are becomes completely revolutionized by our identity. We see ourselves not simply as sinners trying to do our best or as good people trying to be kind and nice, but seeing ourselves as new creations in Christ Jesus. And this is a powerful way to begin to see our life and view the world and even deal with difficult circumstances is because we become so rooted in Christ. And so like Mrs. Jones, Crystal Jones, she created this environment for change and she made a decision about who they are Uh, without holding their current state against them and just kept speaking to their potential and again this is what I think Paul is doing with us so if you would turn with me in your bibles too and maybe you have an outline you want to jot a couple of notes there's some really dense but I think significant things we need to learn about identity why is that so important because we're living in a society that doesn't know who they are and everyone is wanting to self-identify Um, And and this is really a slippery slope because it maintains a fluidity based on circumstances. And if we can't define ourselves, whether it be by our gender uh, or by our nationality, all of a sudden, we're looking, and, and so people define themselves maybe by their success, except that they file for bankruptcy. They, they, they define themselves maybe by their uh, achievements, particularly in athletic achievements, except eventually someone younger and faster and stronger is going to come along. So then what are you left with if that's who you've defined yourself by? It's in Christ that we can have this revolutionary experience and grow old without feeling like I'm going through this crisis. So Paul has spent three chapters talking about the gospel story and if we understand who we are in light of who Christ is, his death, his burial, his resurrection, we can begin to see our lives in a completely different light. That we're invited to live this life of which we couldn't live on our own but in Christ we can be something entirely better, entirely different. So when we get to chapter four, he makes a hard turn a strong pivot, uh, because now what he wants to do is talk about very practically what it looks like. And so in chapter four, and again, I began chapter four next week, or last week, uh, <clears throat> and chapter four begins just by saying, and, and we'll just start there, but we're going to jump down, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, Therefore, he just made like a pivot right there. He went through chapter one through three, and it was all about the gospel story. And now the gospel story, how it applies to our story. Uh, the rest of the book becomes about how we're supposed to live. And Paul gets really specific about things. He talks about marriage, and he talks about purity, and he talks about lying, and he talks about, uh, you know, all kinds of things, parenting and our work ethic. And And to be honest, he gets kind of directive. He gets kind of challenging. And if you just read the second half of Ephesians, you would feel like, golly, this is all about behavior modification. Except that's not what Paul's actually talking about. At first glance, if you just read chapters 4 through 6, it feels like Paul's kind of being the moral police. And if you grew up in a church where behavior meant everything, and you are supposed to look and act and talk a certain part, this feels sort of stifling. Like, oh, can we go back to grace? Can I just go read a different book of the Bible? But what we have to understand is Paul maintains a core conviction. And it's this. It's not just change your behavior. Paul maintains that there is a source of motivation that is at the root of everything and so behavior will come when identity is defined in who we are in christ so we need to pay close attention and that's what i hope we'll do that's why i want to kind of take a kind of an inch by inch view of this but paul believes that the way you act comes from a person's identity the way you see yourself the value you place on yourself uh, maybe the value you have or don't have uh, but it's It's your identity uh, that changes uh, our behavior. So now drop down to verse 17, and he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. I mean, he's insistent, right? I mean, so this is like kind of a point in your finger, almost like an in your face, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Who is Paul writing to? Not Jewish people. He's telling the Gentiles, which is just a, a... a categorical name for any non Jew, and he's saying, You should no longer live like Gentiles. It's like your pastor standing up and saying, Don't live like an American. You're like, Well, I am an American. Don't live like an educated white person or whatever your category is, it's saying, That's not who you are. And you're like, uh, But that is who I am. He's like, No not based on what chapters one through three just said. And one of the things that I suggested we do through this thing is every time Paul uses the phrase in Christ, in him, or with him, is just to underline the verse. And so I, I encourage you to go through all six chapters with like a highlighter. And every time there's a verse that says in Christ, in him, or with him, it's an identity statement. And I think we need to renew our minds with a view of how God sees us in light of who Christ is. Because if we never begin to retrain our thinking, we will only see ourselves in light of our accomplishments, our talents, our natural abilities. And so we'll exist in this sort of ordinary, humane existence. And what we're invited into is this spiritual reality. And so uh, he he kind of changes this. Now, um, I I have this idea of... um, Oh, if you've ever had coaching at a high level, or maybe if you've ever kind of watched something like uh, an Olympic coach pushing an athlete because they know what the athlete's not only capable of, but maybe that the athlete uh, is going to be up against. And so they ride them really hard to bring out the very best in them. Now, that can feel like legalism, or it can feel very developmental. So when we hear Paul being very precise about how we're supposed to speak or how we're supposed to like work or how we're supposed to act uh, or... What he's doing is he's coming alongside, speaking to our potential, not just our behavior modification, he's talking about the source of our motivation. Super important. Uh, and And then he says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So this is funny because he's in jail for the sake of the Gentiles. He's already said, I've been a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles in a chapter earlier and in two chapters earlier in in, in chapter two, he says, you're Gentiles by birth, but now he's like saying in chapter four, don't live like the Gentiles anymore. And what he's saying to us all, not just them, is your identity is bigger than your culture or your ethnic category, you as a Christian, are part of a new humanity. Now, this is problematic a little bit for me because I was raised in the church. I didn't have a very strong before and after. Uh, if you knew me back then and you knew me now. And so I was kind of brought up to just believe in, in this idea. And, I, and so it, it, I, I didn't get to paint in such stark contrast. But wherever you began your journey with and in Christ, understand this, that it is far bigger than your citizenship, your ethnicity, and your culture. And so we're invited to move beyond that. Even though that helps describe us, it doesn't define us. And Paul's making a strong case to be defined by this identity in Christ. Um, uh, So maybe we could say you're an American who happens uh, to be a Christian, right? Uh, <clears throat> now, Paul's always teaching and challenging uh, who we are in light of who Christ is. And and so, uh, he again, he insists on it, don't live like the Gentiles, and he's saying, you're something new. Verse 18 and 19, he goes on to say, uh they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is due that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more which sounds mildly American uh if we're honest but he's talking about this idea of being darkened and so maybe the way to think about losing sensitivity is you develop calluses now tis the season for leaves and i will go out and do yard work and the thing that i know is every year that i get out to rake my leaves and gather them all up my hands are the most wimpy wussy hands and i will get the same blister right here right here because i'm just not used to holding a rake for that long it happens every year i'm like well i'll wear gloves and still happens every year. I get the same blister. Why? Because it's not my day job. I have no calluses. I, have, I don't have working man's hands. I don't have farmer hands. Uh, if you've ever shook the hand of someone who like, works with their hands for a living, it's like these mitts. And uh, uh, my Uncle Gordy, who just worked with his hands for his whole life, I just went to his 90th birthday party to this day, he's just got layers and layers of skin there. I don't think he blisters anymore because it's just layers of calluses. I think in the same way Paul's speaking to how we callous up our own hearts. What he is not saying is the idea that if you're not a Christian, that you're somehow dumb or darkened in your understanding. But what he is saying is there is this way that we give our our heart away to these desires... And that can kind of actually lead us away. He he talks about them in terms of deceitful desires. So how does someone become morally callous? Paul says it starts with the way of your thinking. So initially, you start thinking about things differently. Uh, You start um, kind of justifying. You maybe start um, cutting corners. You start thinking, well, it's only wrong if I get caught. And then all of a sudden, these desires start becoming foreign based on um, social acceptability. And, and, and so there, there is this idea that we kind of grow further and further away. And so Paul here is talking about this moral formation of knowledge and, and a growing sensitivity rather than an idea that we would somehow excuse or tolerate our own flaws. He's wanting our hearts to be supple. That's not a word we use a lot, but if you think of leather, you can think of leather that's just been crusty and, and dried out and come brittle or highly conditioned leather that's soft and actually has, feels like it has moisture still in it. It's supple. And so our hearts need to be resensitized. And so one of the ways we talk about repentance here is the idea through our rhythm of renewal. What is renewal? Well, simply it's the idea that we want to have a growing awareness of the presence of God. We want to be able to yield our lives when God's Spirit speaks. Maybe it's to turn away from something. Maybe it's to turn towards someone. But the idea is in our daily lives beyond when we're gathered for worship is that we have this growing sensitivity to just maybe come clean and confess. Maybe to tell on ourselves and, and own the fact that we've come up short, or that we let someone down, or that we misspoke, or we overreacted. The point is this, we can maintain a sensitivity of our heart, even though everything around us says guard and, and insulate our hearts. I think what God is wanting to do is break our hearts for all the right reasons. And there's people around us that actually have needs. And so we're, we become more conditioned to respond to those needs. There's, there's our hearts become more conditioned to who Christ is. And now that we're seeing ourselves in light of who he is, we want to be consistent with that image. So he's not talking about, you know, being darkened as kind of dim-witted. He's saying, no, they're darkened because it's just become dulled or, 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 or numb. Verse 20 you however did not come to know him that way now Paul had spent two years in Ephesus and he planted several of these tribes these house churches everyone had day jobs but he had started so he had this huge track record and and he, and he started and so he knew the spiritual birth kind of like me standing up here and going boy when we started three years ago we had Laurel as kind of our only musician and now we've kind of grown this thing and 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 more people are stepping up and sticking their hand up in the air and say yeah I play a little of this or yeah I've been learning this and all of a sudden it's coming together Paul knows the sort of hereditary background the genealogy of this faith community and he knows the reports of people stepping up and finding their voice he knows the way that they're integrating as gentiles and they're coming from all places in the world and he's like this is a vibrant young community of house churches and so he's speaking to that but he's talking about how they came to know Christ in the first place you were taught with regard to your former way of life Uh, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of Christ and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he said, you, however, do not come to know Christ this way. See, when you hear the message of Jesus, it can feel like a rude awakening uh, if we've lived as the center of our own lives. If, if somehow we're told to make God the, the, the center of our life, Jesus is the new one who I pledge my allegiance to, it feels like an interruption to us. And and we start to see our lives, and maybe we, we see our ethic a little different, and going, oh, I never thought it was a problem, but if I compare it to the life Christ, there's a problem. Or we start to look at maybe, um, uh, you know, kind of what we've considered our normal, how to get by in business, how to... Um, you know you have to be competitive and then some and that goes into some fuzzy gray areas or or maybe we never realized that um you know look out for me is probably not a great leading um motivation in life uh we started to realize man i didn't realize i had this much control issues i thought that was just kind of normal like i was being conscientious or maybe i didn't realize envy was such a problem or fear i didn't realize and all of a sudden when we find our lives in christ It can feel like this divine interruption it can feel unnerving because wait i was doing just fine and then now christ is becoming more the center of my life and it feels unsettling but here's the thing that happens at first it doesn't feel like good news but at the same time the stuff that's being exposed is also married to god's love all the stuff that we're becoming more aware of as we grow in christ is also the stuff that that Christ is saying it doesn't change my affection for you which makes it a lot easier to come clean and repent it makes it a lot easier to turn to yield because acceptance is, is is not part of the equation and so the minute our flaws are revealed hope and love also emerge and so here's this thing of God's love and his forgiveness but redemption through Christ This is what's happening and he talks about their former way of life and now all of a sudden they're not the center and Christ is the center and they're becoming more in tune with you know my life used to look like this. I used to think this was okay. It's sort of like saying like I don't know if you used to eat a certain way and now you look at how you used to eat and you're like (laughs) that's crazy. It would be midnight and I'd be eating a pint of ice cream and just roll over and go to sleep Uh, and I'm like That's so terrible. And and I would have three deep fried meals a day or, or whatever. And we're like, I can't believe I used to eat that way. I think the same thing begins to happen as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is, who I am in light of who Christ is. Stuff starts to boil to the surface because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we begin to name those things, all of a sudden we realize that doesn't change God's affection for me. And so through his redemption, we find this new life. Paul's talking about them to their former way of life. And you were taught this way. And so it's this beautiful picture that God is applying the gospel story to their individual stories. Now, he gives three ways we do this. And this is super important for it. And after this week, he gets really actual practical uh, and talks about very specific things, but he simply says you need to put on, uh, or excuse me, put off uh, your old self, uh, put on your new self, and then he, and, and then he talks about uh, this, this kind of being made new. So let's just talk about those three ways uh, to practice this, what we can call this new humanity, right? Because we're called to be new humans. Put on this new self. In fact, the word self there is the word anthropos, anthropos. Uh, where we would get the word anthropology, which for women that might be the store you do cartwheels for, but for others who have studied, you know, that's the study of you know human cultures. Uh, but he's simply saying it. The implication is being disrobed. It's it's like taking off, like yesterday's fashion, and just taking like no no that's that's not a good look for you today. That that thing is so. 1995 of you to wear uh, or, or something and so we, you take it off and he's saying put off your former self and so we get corrupted by these evil desires and so again I would simply say desires can be deceiving because here's why we see desires oftentimes as an end in themselves we didn't realize it was a bad desire but it didn't lead to more. And so we live a life with you know if only I could attain this If only I could attain this marital status, if only I could find this kind of soulmate, if only I could achieve this kind of recognition in my field, if only, right, and these become actually debilitating desires because they become end in and of themselves, they'll never bring us meaning, let alone contentment, contentment. And so it's like an endless trail of breadcrumbs. And, and, and again, those desires can never give us the kind of identity of meaning and worth. And then he says, you were taught to be made new. Many taught just to be, uh, just to be saved from going to hell. Like, like, I don't know how many of you grew up in a church that was like, you need to be saved and you need to pray this prayer so that you don't go to hell. And he's like, oh my gosh, you need to be taught and you need to be like, how to be made new and so one of the things that you'll hear me say every single Easter is Easter is a promise that wasn't just intended for one man but for all of us not just at one time but for all time there is this idea that we get to be born again and again and again and again when necessary because we're called not to a static faith but to this living vibrant faith that requires a practice. So we walk in this new kind of humanity with a profound humility of just saying, I can't walk this alone, but I can't stand still and hope to grow and look any different. And he says, you were taught to be made new. And he talks about the attitude or the spirit of the mind, the remaking of our mind. And so what we see a lot uh, is that only sometimes outside of my own humanity, we can salvage and redeem me. And that's good news. Resurrection means that sin doesn't get the last word in our story. And the story of Jesus reshapes it all so that we can start over with starting with a view of ourselves. And then he talks about putting on the new humanity. So there's some things that we need to spiritually, and I would do this regularly, we need to put off. We need to disrobe. We need to let that go. There needs to be something. And by the way, um, sometimes that, that's gonna come from other people. That's gonna come from people going, hey, brother, I, I don't know if you're aware that when you say this, this is how it comes across. Wow, that sounds like Christian community. That sounds like really healthy um, kind of you know, expression of brotherly love. Uh, and, and that's why I don't think we can really go through a transformational process in isolation. We, we frankly just need each other and, and we need each other close and, and we need each other to kind of know and be current in our lives. And so he talks about, okay, putting off and now, now we're going to be going through this process of making our, our, you know, renewing of our mind, being made new. And then he talks about putting on this new humanity. And for Paul, it's an act of faith and trust. In Jesus, we can become the version of me that I cannot be for myself. And this is maybe mildly hard for us because if you you have any perfectionism in you at all, you go, gosh, I could never live up to God's standard. I can't even live up to my standards. I beat myself up all the time. I get so frustrated and start this talk of self-loathing. He's like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. And, And so by faith, I get to put on the new version of myself knowing that Christ is present with me every day, and I'm learning to renew my heart and my mind by the way I yield to the Spirit's guidance. Have you ever finished a conversation, maybe it'll work, and you're like, whoa, that was not my finest hour. Have, Have you ever kind of read the body language of someone who just kind of looked at you and didn't say anything, but you're like, that was rude of me. And I'm saying there's something that we need to be sensitive to. Or maybe there's something that you, you've, you didn't do. And you're like, I, I could have been more responsive there. I could have been maybe more empathetic there. I could have been more helpful there. What I'm saying is this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how we're being made new. And when we give our hearts to this, understanding that we are being made in the image of Christ to the extent that we're willing to yield to those things. Paul is declaring, then and now, we are becoming third grade scholars, right? This is is what it is. We might not feel like it. We might not feel like it for a while. But what's true of Jesus can also be true of us if we work at putting on and taking off the renewing of our mind. And that's why we call it faith. It doesn't always look grandiose. It doesn't always look super measurable. But yet when we yield to these small prompts and the discipline of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden our hearts are getting more sensitized. So how do we do that? Well, we hang around people who maybe have done it longer. We hang around and we create a community that people go, no, that's our normal. So we use language like Kairos moments because we want to have moments that we're we're being interrupted by and we want to respond to them. We want to talk about people of peace because when you introduce me to your friends, what I want to do is think about those people uh, in light of how God might have prepared them in advance for us and how they might be needing to take a next step. We want to surround ourselves with people who might have already been thinking along these lines about giving their lives in devotion to Christ. I could go through lists of people who have inspired me with their faith, but also their knowledge, uh, how they've studied the word without ever going to Bible college. And I would say we simply need to surround ourselves, spend time praying this way, study it, you know. It's work, but over time, God partners with us in reshaping our character. So I was thinking, what would it sound like if, if, if the definition of a scholar is, Uh, a scholar lives to learn and is really good at it what what would our definition be what what would be our new identity and I started thinking about maybe a Christian lives uh, to love and works to be made new I I mean you can just play with it but you start to think what is our definition that we now need to live into so that in in just a few months time we can start to see ourselves radically different not just a sinner saved by grace but someone who's living uh, in light of who Christ is in me and and my desires are coming into conformity, into alignment with who He is, and I think that's transformational. And I know that I can't happen just by myself, but that's something that the Holy Spirit can do, working through a community of people. So let's just pray about that together as we wind up. And I'm going to invite B and the band to come back, and we're just going to celebrate together. But will you pray with me, Father? Our 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 desire is a new normal, even though that feels like work and it's hard to sometimes quantify. But I do pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would settle in on our hearts and our minds, that you would make sense of this idea of being found in you. We know what it is to live as the center of our own existence for our own gain, for our own preservation. But Lord, would you give each of us the ability to risk vulnerability for the sake of intimacy with you? I pray that you would gently make us aware of areas yet surrendered, yet confessed. I pray that you would give us a glimpse of how you see us contrasted with how we might see us. Will your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide, but I pray that we can live with greater liberty and freedom because of how we've given our whole hearts to you. I pray that we as a community of faith would walk in this shared practice so that you could be formed in us. But I pray that it would be formed in us, Christ in us. Beyond our upbringing or our family, whatever our family has told us, whatever our culture might have told us, whatever our privilege might have, uh, informed us. I pray that we would see ourselves in light of who you are and that would be nothing short of life changing. I pray this in Jesus name. We give you praise for it. Thank you that hope is within reach. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that our lives can be redeemed uh, again and again and again. So would you just allow us to go through this time, this new normal and 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 resensitize our hearts to what maybe breaks yours. In Jesus' name.